I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Ronald Dworkin. He has practiced anesthesiology in a large medical center for 30 years. He also teaches political philosophy and medicine and society in the George Washington University Honors Program and worked as a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he headed up its medicine, society, and culture project. He writes about medicine and society and American culture and politics for the Wall Street Journal, the American Interest, National Affairs, The New Atlantis, First Things, and other publications. He's the author of several books about the world of medicine and American culture, including most recently, Medical Catastrophe, Confessions of an Anesthesiologist. Ron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, in a recent essay for Law and Liberty, you write that many of today's physicians lack a solid liberal arts education, even though the liberal arts enable people to see through walls, to intuit the deeper meaning and significance of events beyond their mere physical occurrence. Maybe we can start with what are the consequences of a dearth of liberal arts prior to entering medicine? And then what would an important pre-medical liberal arts education, medical humanities education look like? All right. I think I can uh, put the two questions together in my answer. I think when you speak of liberal arts education, you mean liberal arts as traditionally taught, not today's liberal arts education, which may be more indoctrination. But in the case of liberal arts education, it's very important for doctors and, and other professionals too, I might add, lawyers, for example, in the following sense. Whenever you start out as a medical student or as a resident, you are basically a technician. You are learning your craft. But inevitably, you will want to rise above that station. In America, to rise above that station, that usually means managing the technicians, managing other technicians. So, for example, to rise in your specialty society or state society, medicine, that kind of thing. And to manage people, you have to know what makes people tick, understand their lives, and therefore you have to understand the liberal arts. Now, also, when you rise up in your career and you manage technicians, you also have meetings with other managers. And to be able to have meetings with other managers, you have to be able to conceptualize and, and think in general ideas. And for these reasons, you have to know the liberal arts. Another reason is doctors, not just doctors, but all professionals, are affected in some way, directly or indirectly, by government. There's no way to avoid government now in the economy. And, and to know government, you have to know public opinion, you have to know politics, and you, therefore you have to know the, the liberal arts. The third reason why liberal arts is so important is that even if you only want to practice your craft and be a clinician, remain a doctor, not rise above and become a manager of technicians, you still have to know historical trends. You have to know political economy and so on, because this, that determines your future compensation. It determines whether your job will even exist in the future. Classic example of this was doctors in the 1970s, 60s and 70s. They thought uh, they were quite conservative politically and traditionally. They saw business as their friend and government was not their friend. But they were broadsided in the 1990s by the rise of HMOs and corporate medicine. Many doctors were unhappy about that. Perhaps if they had studied the liberal arts and political economy, they would have realized that there are an array of, of factors out there that affect your job and your compensation. And therefore, as a professional in the liberal, liberal arts can help you dramatically understand the lay of the land. Now, for doctors in particular, when you're actually training, it's important to, the, to know the liberal arts for rather obvious reasons. You, you have to deal with patients from all walks of life all backgrounds, and you have to have a knowledge of human nature to the degree that human nature exists in one form or another. But even as specialists, you still have to know the liberal arts. In my 
own field of anesthesiology, for example, you can be a very narrow-minded anesthesiologist and still be a great success. I admit that. And the most important trait in an anesthesiologist is not panicking when there's an emergency. That's the most important thing for an anesthesiologist to do. But even specialists can benefit from the liberal arts in how to interpret data, interpret histories, and so on. Uh, in performing pr procedures, uh, doctors have to be somewhat artistic and to learn from the great artists, the great masters of art. You have to learn to not have a standardized procedure, but to simply create your own style. And you have to have a develop a philosophy when things go wrong in medicine. And certainly a liberal arts can help you with philosophy and help you do that. So all those reasons, I think the liberal arts can be very beneficial for doctors and doctors in training. And what, what would a kind of like pre-medical or even like a med school curriculum look like? Or how, would, how do you envision this liberal arts education for aspiring physicians or for physicians themselves? Do you mean in pre-med or medical school? Uh, let's say uh, both. Okay. Let's start with medical school first. Um, by then it might be a bit, you, it could be almost a little bit too late if you're just been a science person during pre-med, <clears throat> but it's still possible. I think I would construct a, a liberal arts program for doctors in the following way. I would have a section on bioethics, probably two or three sections on bioethics. That's its own sphere. And it's something that doctors have to know and understand. But then the other um, aspect of the liberal arts education, I would probably have two classes or two courses for um, medical students. One would be medicine and the individual, and the other would be medicine and society. Medicine and the individual would be, say, reading the great novels, for example, and about how to deal with questions of illness and death. A classic example would be uh, Tolstoy's work, uh, Death, of Ivan uh, Death of Ivan Ilyich, for example. Medicine and society would be much more sociological, and that also would bring in, say, politics, public opinion, history. But that's how I probably would set up a, a medical school curriculum for liberal arts, assuming that the medical students haven't had any exposure to liberal arts before. In pre-med, in basic college, I would simply take anything in the liberal arts, history, philosophy, religion, literature. They all, I, I don't like to segment them and, uh, and say that the fields are separate. They all kind of coalesce in a way. They all approach the same problems from slightly different vantage. So anything in the liberal arts, the more the better. As long as you're engaging with the liberal arts and you're not engaging with indoctrination and ideology, that's a different story. Have you noticed, because we're talking somewhat about the pragmatic kind of benefits of a liberal arts education, have you noticed in your teaching, in your practice of medicine, that there's a difference between the students or residents who have majored in some kind of liberal arts specialty, like history or humanities or something like that, and those who pursued solely kind of a scientific background? Well, a little bit. The problem is that the people who have a science background, background totally come with a clean slate. Uh, people who come with a liberal arts education can come in one of two ways. They can come in the way I described, sort of thoughtful, interested in the world around them, and, and liberal arts are very beneficial. But more often than not, I've seen people come in who are simply indoctrinated, and they look at life through the prism of basic ideologies. And it actually has made it worse, not better for them, because they cannot shake hold, they cannot transcend their education to think beyond the liberal arts model they've been taught. So in a way, they're somewhat disadvantaged relative to the people who have never been exposed to the liberal arts at all. Hmm. I, I want to dig into that maybe a little bit. What have you noticed in terms of, I don't know, maybe closed-mindedness closed might be excessively punishing, but 
what have you noticed as it applies to medicine or the treatment of patients that you think is kind of has these adverse effects as learners or physicians? Well, for the physicians themselves, I've noticed a dissatisfaction with their work. The division of labor in uh, medicine has grown quite intense as it has grown intense in many other specialties, uh, many other professions. People specialize and subspecialize. And therefore, OBGYN, for example, who might have done general OBGYN years ago, now focuses on, say, fertility. Uh, ophthalmologists, who may have done general ophthalmology years ago, now focuses on just cataracts and does that every day of his or her life. And the same can be said for uh, internal medicine. The idea of being able to take care of patients in an office setting and in a hospital setting, both, that's gone now because the hospitalist takes over. The hospitalist takes over the patients as soon as the, the patient enters the hospital. So I think doctors themselves are unhappy not be able to explore other facets of their personality and of their humanity. And the lack of a liberal arts is simply one more manifestation of that becoming sort of a, a cog in a machine. As for dealing with patients, um, it's not so much the patients themselves and dealing with the patients that I think the liberal arts has been, well, the doctors who are deficient in liberal arts don't do well. You can have an easygoing personality, make friends easily, uh, talk to people. That's not something to learn. That's almost a knack. And people who can do that in medicine naturally, they'll often do well no matter what. I think the liberal arts, though, is advantageous in the sense that how you approach history taking, how you approach data, how you approach scientific articles, uh, instead of blindly following, following algorithms and rules, I think the doctors who have more liberal arts background are more questioning and are more able to kind of as I said before, transcend their education or escape the, the boundaries of the rules and the algorithms. They're more flexible of mind. And so I think there is that advantage that, that I've seen for them. Interesting. I, you know, I've noticed, and I don't, I don't know if this is a trend, but I have noticed that I think the liberal arts force us to answer bigger questions than people who don't necessarily study the liberal arts are easily dismissive of. Let me give an example. If you have a patient who is really not doing well, there is the question of, do you talk to the family and say, this patient really should be comfortable, comfort care, palliative care, hospice? Or do you say, well, there's still a chance here. Now their quality of life isn't going to be great, but they're still human and they're still dignity in that life and they may still kind of want that life. And I've noticed that a lot of the kind of very heavy-handed kind of science folks easily say, well, that is not something I would want for myself because I would be cognitively less than I am now and I would not be able to stand for that. I think the liberal arts counters that in some way because you're forced to think about what it means to be human or what is a human being. I don't know if you think that's right or if I'm kind of off base there. What, what do you? I think you are right. In a way, it has a direct application to the wider world of politics. Among both liberals and conservatives, mistakes have been made in policy over the last 30 years. And this mistake can be actually be reduced to the following scenario. People thought to themselves, I would want this. And therefore, the rest of the world would want this. 
and therefore we should push this on the rest of the world. Or I want this, and therefore everyone else, the population, should also want this, and we should push that on the American population. Both liberals and conservatives do this, and they may, they've gotten pushback, and they, they've made mistakes, because not everyone thought the way they did. They had different ways of thinking, different concerns, different issues. They have different frameworks of thinking. But the person who does not have a liberal arts background <clears throat> won't think that way. And they will only think in that more self-centered way. And that can lead to real screw-ups in larger policy in the, on the domestic and foreign policy front. <clears throat> but even as on the lower level of the patient, not everyone thinks the way you do. And I think it takes a, a liberal arts education to joggle a person's mind to realize that because it's not natural given the state of most people's egoism to think that way. Right. And, and I, I think the, there's a lot of overlap even between the scientific, solely scientific mindset and the, what you call kind of the indoctrination liberal arts mindset, such that I think the indoctrinated liberal arts student thinks very similarly to the way someone who's just solely steeped in science does. And I see this as well. I actually, I call it Ivy League syndrome because I think it it tends to happen amongst the very, very highly educated students and advanced like grad students. I think, I think one of the, the issues here, and this is important, this is important, let me make this point here. The liberal arts, in, the reason it's important is that it trains a mind, it creates a mind that will react in ways that a person cannot foresee because life cannot be foreseen. The point of the liberal arts is to craft a mind that reacts in a positive or judicious or favorable manner when, when, favor, when, when faced with the unexpected. Because so much of a life is surprise and people are different. Unless your mind is prepared to deal with that, you'll be overthrown by those surprises. And liberal arts trains the mind to be prepared. But it, it's not the dissemination of any particular information. It's not as if a person can recall, oh, yes, I read that in Shakespeare or I read that in history. That's not the purpose of the arts. It's supposed to season a mind so that it can't be prepared to face things that cannot be foreseen. And that's a different way of looking at the liberal arts. But that's how I see the advantage of the liberal arts for doctors. Right. And that makes total sense. It's a, it's, it's a training you, uh, training a frame of mind or a mindset rather than just being able to identify with a character. And, and right, it's not giving history. you any specific techniques. It's not giving you a school of thought. That's not the purpose of the arts. Although some people believe it is the purpose. I think I believe that's erroneous. But for doctors in particular, it's a, it's a different, more abstract skill that it's giving you, which is ability to react to life in that hits you in unknown ways. It actually, this kind of reminds me of an essay that you wrote, which is one of my favorite essays of yours, which is in the Hedgehog Review on medical humanities and the specialist. And you wrote doctors, especially specialists, often rush through a patient history simply because they have less respect for history than they do for science. It's not just that medicine is a branch of science. To them, science is concerned with advancing, with moving forward, with creating what has never existed before, while history is devoted to nothing more than restructuring what is old and recreating the past. What could be simpler, they think, than describing what has already happened? Such a disdainful attitude makes medical specialists a bit sloppy when they craft or report a patient's history, a growing concern as more doctors work in shifts and hand off care to others. I think this relates very closely to what we've been talking about, but maybe you can expand on this. How do the roles of history and science contribute to the practice of medicine, and, and where does this disdain for history come from? Okay. 
history, obviously, of everything in, in, to some degree in medicine because uh, it affects your diagnosis, it affects your, your treatment plan. problem, of course, is getting time and getting the history. Uh, there's only so much time with doctor-patient re- relation now in, in, in medicine. If I can dilate on that, let me say why I think history has gotten short shrift. There's always an effort for the last several, couple of hundred years, a uh, few hundred years, to always look for a cause. When something happens, what's the cause? Now, say 300 years ago, people would say, what is the cause of this event? They would say, well, religion was the cause. The devil made him do it, or God intervened. That was how the thinking went. And then around the 19th century, we moved beyond that, although the religious idea wasn't that bad, into thinking that, well, history, historians will explain the cause of events. So uh, why did uh, Napoleon lose at Waterloo? The French army wasn't prepared or didn't have the same morale or so on, whatever. So history became the way to explain events and became all important. And then around the early 20th century, history didn't seem precise enough. And therefore, social science came into being. Political science, economics, sociology, they will explain the causes of events and why they occurred and what to do about them in the future. Well, that proved to not be that useful. You know, a lot of social scientists made a lot of errors in the 20th century. So for the last 30, 40 years, it really has come down to science. Science will explain events. And so when we want to think about uh, why things happen in the mind. You simply have to know neurology, neuroscience, uh, that will look, or genetics. That will explain the cause of events. And so over the last few hundred years, the thinking has grown more and more Science will explain the cause of things. We can rely on science to do this. And therefore, history is sort of like a, an old arcane old way of doing things. So I think doctors have, have brought a little bit of that into their mindsets, that history is sort of dismissed as something um, atavistic, something that was used a couple centuries ago, but is not particularly precise. We really need to use science to explain causes and therefore and to go forward from that position. Right. And and you think that has seeped into the idea of even history taking with a patient? I definitely do. Yeah. Because history taking, as I said in the in that essay, is it seems so imprecise and so imprecise, but also so simple. I mean, anyone can pick events and how you pick and choose. Are there causes here? Are there causes there? You don't really know. Therefore, let's use chemistry and physics. Let's use biology. We'll figure out the cause of events and how to proceed based on that. And I think that has prejudiced doctors, um, particularly as medicine has grown more scientific over the last 50, 60 years, into giving history short shrift. Yeah, I, I have definitely noticed that too. And I part of it, I think, is the system itself, which has created this rush to just see as many patients as possible. And so you take these shortcuts. One of the things that gets shorted is just the time with the patient. So you say, well, I'll just rely on the MRI. Yes. I'll just rely on the CAT scan. I don't have to like go into detail with history. The phenomenon I described sort of predisposes doctors to accept that. Well, we have the data and we don't really need the history because the data is there. The science is there. What more do we need? And, I, and that I think that predisposes them to think that way, to accept that. Yes, for sure. And I, I think it in some ways it impedes, I don't know, thinking more broadly about medical diagnoses, new medical discoveries, illnesses in a way too. You know, we think about symptoms where we're not sure exactly what's going on and all the tests come back negative. And well, is this something that's just kind of psychogenic or is there actually something biologic going on? And 
you know, we rely so heavily on these very objective scientific measures that we sometimes ignore the subtle signs of other things going on, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. In some ways, there's progress. In some ways, regression. For example, take the case of pain. There used to be a division between organic pain, functional pain, meaning pain in your mind, psychogenic pain. And that was a division for many centuries. And then people realized that for many people who doctors said, your pain is all in your head. It wasn't in their head. Um, what happened was that there are um, oh, different nerve pathways that do not show on radiographic imaging any pathology, but they don't fire correctly. They misfire. They don't fire in proper timing. And that leads to certain kinds of reflex dystrophies, for example. So there was progress there in, in real recognizing that you can't wall off some pain as simply just psycholo psychological. But in the process of being progressive in the sense that you're beginning to take seriously all forms of pain, not just pain where there's a lesion, you also had a tendency to discount the mind, the history, in the sense that, well, we're going to look for the scientific basis for all pain. And we're going to look forward not just in the lesions that we see, but on misfiring of nerves and so on. So on the one sense, we took other pain that we before would have dismissed as unserious or said it was all in the patient's head. We started taking it very seriously. That's a good thing. On the other hand, we did so by saying everything now is within the compass of science. And therefore, the psychology is not quite as important. Science is the most important. Let's talk a bit about expertise. Last year, you wrote about the concept of expertise, in particular as it pertains to medicine. And I'm kind of fascinated by this topic, mostly because I, I'm very junior attending at this point, and so I still rely on the expertise of many of the senior faculty to, to help me when I feel kind of stuck on a, on a clinical or research question. You, you said that we kind of need to update our understanding of expertise, that an expert is not necessarily machine-like in knowledge and efficiency. There's something more. Yes. The, the expert as machine has been around, I think, since the beginning of like the early 20th century, when the machine model was the idea of perfection. A machine is never late. It doesn't have mood swings. It does the same thing over and over again. And in a very standardized way, it never makes mistakes in that sense. And so the idea, there was a spectrum of the person who was the fool was on one side, who least expertise, and the person, the machine, who had most expertise, was the best. And professionals saw themselves as somewhere on that spectrum, where they aspire to be as expert-like as the machine and not be like the, the lay person who had no experience or the rookie. But that's the wrong, wrong way of thinking about it. because. It is true that some aspects of doctoring are machine-like, and by doing it repetitively over and over again, you will get good at it. And so, for example, would be taking a class in ACLS, uh, learning how to get the right depth of chest compressions, which drugs to use in certain order. You can almost approach the, approach the perfection of a machine, and that's true. And you think that, oh, I'm growing more expert-like by doing so. But that's an erroneous way to look at expertise, because I think experts operate on a totally different, totally different plane. An expert does well and shows his or her stripes where there is doubt, where the path forward is unclear, where there are variables that can't be controlled for. A machine doesn't do as well there, but an expert can. But this requires cognitive traits that are, that are sort of skills that uh, knowing when to follow rules, for example, and when not to follow them. 
when to bring the human side to bear on decision making, uh, this kind of thing. A, a machine can't do this. If you look at the data, people have often wondered recently, why are these senior residents sometimes better than these veteran doctors? Their thinking was, well, the doctors may have lost their skills because they didn't practice as much and the senior residents, they were doing all these different cases. But that may not be the case. It may be that the senior residents, some of them, had cognitive traits which were very valuable in dealing with patients in unusual situations, why the veteran physicians never had them in the first place, and therefore they weren't as good as senior residents. There's a whole understanding of the expert I'm tr was trying to move us onto a, onto a different plane, where we look at the expert as someone who has these cognitive traits are useful in a way that a machine cannot bring value. If you, if you look at the history of the word expert, it comes from, the, I think, the Latin word experiae, which doesn't mean always getting to right. It means to try. Experiae means to try. It means in a world of doubt, you're going to try to get it right. And maybe more than half the time as an expert, you will get it right, but you won't always get it right because you're not a machine. But to get it right more than half the time is pretty good. And that's what I think doctors with their certain cognitive skills can aspire to, not to do the machine-like things that a machine can do, but to operate in a, in a totally different plane altogether. Got it. So you are you fairly skeptical of this idea that AI is going to take over medicine, after I've heard kind of proffered in some kind of singularity sectors. Do you think that's kind of bunk? I think so, yes, because the, the AI is very useful. I won't deny it. I mean, the uh, machines are very useful. I'm not knocking machines. I'm not a Luddite. But you still need the expert who is more than just a machine to navigate the world of doubt and uncertainty, to make decisions where there's no obvious way forward. And for that, you will always have to have the human being. The machine can't do that for you. So I don't think AI will be able to ever replace the human doctor. Just can't do it. Do you think as medical education stands now, let's put the liberal arts question aside as you know we talked about, as medical education stands now, do you think we are training the proper experts in medicine or do you think we're missing something? My fear is that we are training students to become like these machines and to be proud of being very, very good machines. Now, it's not just, it, there's more than that. And I know, for example, in residency training programs, when the residence directors make evaluations of the residents, they don't evaluate the residents simply on the basis of their ability to master certain skills and to repeat certain algorithms. I know the old anesthesiology directors at the program I used to, I trained in. And the directors said, I always ask when evaluating a resident, would I let that resident put my own family member to sleep? And it was good to ask that because there are many intangible factors that go into whether or not you're going to allow a doctor to say, to put you to sleep, to give you general anesthesia. Certainly there's skill and there's a technical skill, a facility with needles and so on, ability to repeat algorithms and remember rules and so on. But there's another intangible factor that's involved. And the residency program directors, they understood that. So whether or not, because uh, I'm not in a medical school these days, I haven't, I haven't taught in the medical schools. I was teaching in the undergraduate section. Whether medical students, uh, what, what medical students or residents are being taught to be very, very good machines or taught to aspire to something different, I can't say for sure. I do know I look at the research 
there's an effort to make doctors more like machines, better machines. So for example, there are new machines that check whether or not doctors' eyes are deviating from the subject. And so um, if they are deviating, that means they may be tired or they're lost attention. Therefore, that's bad doctoring. Okay. They want to make them into better machines, more efficient machines who never get distracted. Or in the case of uh, doctors who know, don't make any kind of errors, who always remember to give the antibiotics before the incision. Okay, we want something that will never forget, someone that will always have a perfect record, someone who's more like a machine. So these are emphasized in medicine. Uh, and that these are the machine-like qualities that are important, but there's more to medicine than just that. Whether or not they emphasize the other, I cannot really say. I don't necessarily see it in my in my everyday life. I, I can't tell you for sure. Uh, I hope they do. I don't believe they do, but I do hope they do. Yeah. For my own part, I, I'm not sure, honestly. It does sometimes seem like this is a get the job done, get out kind of philosophy that we've created for trainees. That is, you just really just need to check off the items on your list and then you're good to go. Which a machine can do very well, better than we can. Yes. It's kind of sad to see. I mean, I experienced it as a a trainee, that kind of feeling of, I just have to get all this stuff done. I have to call this medical center and get records. I have to you know, check on the labs, et cetera. And there's a loss of something there regarding the person you're actually taking care of. And to your point, I mean, telling a patient that I trust this person, I would trust this person to put me to sleep. It, uh, there's so much packed into that. When I make a referral to another doctor, I usually say that this is someone I would want a family member of mine to see. And then the patient says, oh, good. I'm like, I'll definitely see this person. There's there's a lot there that's beyond just this person can check the the check boxes, I think. Yes, one thing in medical, edu medical education that makes me a little concerned is I know there's a great emphasis these days in all the different specialties on simulation. Yes. They use computer simulations. Now, all right, the simulation is used to train you so that you react in a certain way every time, methodically, systematically, like a machine. It's a little bit like, uh, I think, the 10,000-hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell popularized in, in, popularized in one of his books, where you, you do it more, you do it all the time, you'll get good at it. So you do it 10,000 hours, you become an expert. Now, it's true that you have to do something many hours to get good at. I'm not discounting that in physician expertise. You do have to practice and do many cases, do many procedures to get good at, to be part, that's part of what it means to be an expert. But my concern is that through simulation and the emphasis on simulation, that's going to push medical students and, and doctors in training more and more into the machine model of expertise. I can do the simulation, I can do the algorithms, I can do it over and over and over again. I can be as good as a machine or almost as good. This is not the only route I hope the residents are taking. That can't, otherwise that's a problem. Yeah. Do you think this ties into, you know, you've written about leadership in medicine and, and that doctors have ceased to be leaders. Does this tie into that as well? I wrote an essay several years ago, about 10 years ago, where I saw a lot, a lot of malaise among doctors. They're confused. I think they're basically confused about what it means to be a doctor. And I sort of divided what they were thinking themselves as in that book I wrote, Medical Catastrophe. So some doctors think of themselves as technicians. They are very good, very good at procedures, and they do them over and over again. Other doctors see themselves as scientists, where they do the latest research in places like Johns Hopkins, and that's what it means to be medicine. 
other doctors see themselves primarily as benefactors. They love and they care and want to help the poor and so on. Uh, other doctors see themselves as what have been 20 years ago, gentlemen, but we'll say ladies and gentlemen, mean have a certain kind of a urbane quality about them, a general understanding about people, sort of what the old liberal arts used to do. And some people look at doctoring as a job. Now, 50, 100 years ago, there was a synthesis of all this and that doctors saw themselves as all these dimensions. And it sort of worked. Doctors had a good sense of themselves. But that's sort of unraveled over the last 20, 30 years. So doctors are confused. What exactly, what exactly am I? I don't know what I am. So I wrote the book Medical Lutasia because I wanted to show doctors a new way forward. AI, nurses armed with AI and other paraprofessionals are coming on board. They're highly skilled and they can do many of the functions that doctors can do. They can do many of the technical functions. But doctors have a future, I think, and an interesting future too, given that many doctors feel robbed of their humanity as leaders in the sense that to be a leader means more than just knowing algorithms. It means knowing when to resist pressure from other parties. It means knowing when to stick to your guns. It means having imagination about other people's lives. It it means knowing how to use the minds of others, uh, say in the operating room, uh, and how to work together in concert. It knows how to smooth over controversies. A doctor knows how to motivate reluctant subordinates, how to get the parallelogram of forces, say just the patient, but the patient's family and other doctors on board. All these things are the qualities of a diplomat and a leader. And I think the future for doctoring is to some degree because doctors are expensive. Inevitably, the economy is going to require nurses and nurse practitioners, advanced practice nurses and other paraprofessionals, paraprofessionals to take on the, off the load from doctors because there's not, not enough doctors. We see this in people waiting for a whole year to get appointments. But doctors have a future, certainly the non-surgical doctors, a future in being leaders in the diplomats I describe. And I think it would be a, a very interesting life for them because a, a lot of doctors, as I said, they don't really understand what they are right now. But I think there is a future for them in this role, at least the primary care doctors or the non-surgical, non-procedure oriented doctors. And that leadership role you see is supervising a lot of the advanced nurse practitioners or physician's assistants? How do you see that practically? Well, I'll tell you first, it would be if you look at the pattern of of doctors who were leaders. One, two days a week, they would do the cases themselves. They would do the procedures themselves. They have to. Otherwise, you'll get rusty and you're not an expert anymore. You must do the cases. But then the other days, you will probably be in a supervisory role. So when there is a complicated case, there's confusion. Say, a patient with maybe a difficult intubation, but they can't get a spinal. How do you sort out the, how do you sort out the, um, the different parameters? And also maybe the patient is anxious about something, and the, parent and, the, and the family is superstitious about something. How do you get everyone on board so it works together? So that's what the doctor will be spending the other three days a week doing. During those three days, that doctor will also be doing some cases too. But that primary role will be a little bit different from simply churning out the cases cases in the division of labor, doing the same thing over and over again. It, it'd be different from that and more rewarding, I believe. Yeah, I, you know, I completely agree. I, I just look at our system and the finances of all of this stuff, and I just doubt that our system will create space for that kind of role for a physician. I think it will, because don't forget, when the physicians aren't doing the cases and other paraprofessionals are, those paraprofessionals are paid less. 
and therefore the, the healthcare system will save money. The doctors will still be there, fewer in number, have a different role altogether. So actually, I think it's almost cost effective to do it this way because you will have, and I've noticed, for example, a nurse anesthetist, uh, when I first started out, they weren't particularly well-trained in medicine. They're very well-trained now. They're excellent on the vast majority I've, I've worked with are excellent. Uh, they can take on a lot of the duties of, of doctoring, the old traditional doctoring, but then the doctor then will have this other role because issues always arise. There are always problems, the human problems that arise or uncertainties that arise. And then the doctor will be there to sort of resolve some of them. So I do think it's cost effective. In many cases, it's almost mandatory. It's almost coming to be that way. Interesting. And it would just mean fewer physicians kind of in the workforce and more of these kind of advanced uh, nursing jobs. Fewer physicians, but those physicians will be very well trained and they'll be trained in the liberal arts. They have to be. You can't be a leader unless you're trained in the liberal arts, at least in the old way. So those people who become doctors, they'll be more than just machines. It'll be something that it'd be quite aspirational. It'll be quite an interesting career to be able to have the machine-like qualities, sure, but to have this other quality too, nurtured through education and liberal arts, that's a very rewarding career. Yeah. Very interesting. I, let's shift gears a bit to talk about the place of neuroscience in our culture. Uh, you've written about this, and I think you know, came up earlier in the conversation. And you've referred to, to this in the past as the neuroscience doctrine. So in order for us to understand human life uh, or inner human life, we need to probe the brain matter for its origins. So understanding happiness, depression, we just kind of look at neurotransmitters and receptors and boom, we've got an understanding. You've hypothesized that our recent treatments of e-cigarettes, which is sort of perhaps a little scornful, and then cannabis, which is like benign indifference or active support, illustrate how this doctrine goes awry. Can you take us through this argument? Okay. Well, the concern about neuroscience in general and approaches some of these lifestyle issues and questions of anxiety, depression, is it's too unilateral and reductionist. So I've given an example. If I were to tell you to study law, you must read, you must know law books. And to know law books, you must know paper because law books are written with paper. And to know paper, you must know trees because paper comes from trees. And therefore, you know, know trees, you must know botany. Therefore, to understand the law, you must know botany. Now, if I were to say that to you, you would say it was absurd. But you're basically saying the same thing when it comes to neuroscience. To understand a person's everyday unhappiness, you must understand the mind. And to understand the mind, you must understand the brain. To understand the brain, you must understand neurons. And to understand neurons, you must understand neurotransmitters. So what happened is you had this incredibly absurd drift from the problem at hand, which is a person's everyday happiness, and to the problem of neuroscience. It's reducing the problem to an engineering problem. Uh, and happiness, whatever lifestyle problem, is an engineering problem. And that's just simply to reductionists people who are ideologues and that every field can have an ideologue and people who are ideologues strongly believe that neuroscience is the answer to everything. I think they're incredibly mistaken. Now, in the case of uh, e-cigarettes, my concern was this. The problem of e-cigarettes, it, it's, I know people who smoke cigarettes and I know people who smoke or vape e-cigarettes. And when they do so, they have they do so because it relieves their anxiety or because they have their everyday life and happiness and it makes them feel better. Okay, fine. What happened is that these people are being caught in a pincer movement where on the one side 
you have, say, public health people who are trying to legislate out of existence that kind of behavior and argue that we can improve people so they don't have to resort to these kinds of substances and we can give them a certain kind of therapy or whatever lifestyle change, perhaps we can give antidepressants, encourage them to exercise, encourage them alternative medicine. Somehow we can legislate the problem of smoking and vaping out of existence. On the other side, you have the neuroscientists who say, this is a problem of addiction and uh, addiction is an illness. And so we have to attack this problem of, say, e-vaping and addiction to nicotine from the other angle. What I'm asking for is that there be a little bit of safe space, I'm going to call it that, where it's an understanding that science and public health can't penetrate, where people go about their everyday lives and their everyday troubles, and they want to reach for a beer, and if they want to reach for a vape, they should be able to do so, because life is not amenable to a stable equilibrium. It's not possible to do what either the public health people on one side or the neuroscientists on the other side want to do. There will always be this area in the middle where people will simply go about their business and live their lives the best they can, and there can't be any balance, and they resort to sometimes these kind of mood-modifying agents, and that's how it will always be. Rowan's support of vaping, it was in that spirit, which I did so, let people have a little bit in their private life to do that. That's what I was calling for. And and you see the embrace of cannabis as, in some ways, may not hypocritical, but it's it's it defeats kind of all the things that they're trying to drive at. Is that right? Well, it's curious because cannabis seems actually is more dangerous than vaping. First of all, it's mood modifying. I think if you had a choice between your air, airplane pilot smoking a joint or vaping, I'd rather have them vaping. So it's it's curious. Uh, now there's evidence that cannabis affects developing brain. It's amazing that cannabis has been gone from being considered the worst kind of drug in the 1980s to be perfectly acceptable. And by vaping, is not allowed. Now, I think it's a class thing in the sense that people who smoke cigarettes who want to vape those are often working class or little lower middle class people. The people who make decisions on things, these things, upper middle class people, they don't really smoke and they're not interested in vaping. Now, they do like cannabis, though, just as they like their brie and Chardonnay. They're not going to restrict those. There's, there's some hypocrisy there. My concern about cannabis is mostly, as I said, the mood modifying issue. I look at cannabis the way I look at alcohol. I'm concerned that just as I don't want my truck operator or my anesthesiologist to be you know, drinking, I don't want them be using cannabis. So I like to make sure the rules are rigid when it comes to that. But there doesn't seem to be that incentive. I'm not sure why. Maybe, as I said, upper middle class people simply um, enjoy their cannabis. It may also be something else, kind of a weird way. Cannabis has been studied to a great degree by doctors and neuroscientists. They even found a receptor for the cannabis, and they're very interested in it. And when you have receptors in the brain for something, it gives it a kind of a legitimacy in a way, kind of perverse. Nicotine receptors were vaping work, cigarettes. Oh, there's nothing prestigious about that. I'm not even sure there are receptors. They're not even sure. They just know that nicotine is a general stimulant. So in the lexicon of neuroscience, vaping is sort of low on the list. Why? Cannabis and other mood-modifying drugs that have their specialized receptors that people study, they'd say like the GABA receptor or the opioid receptor, they're a, higher, they're a higher in rank and prestige because they have a receptor and somehow it gives the drug and add a legitimacy. It's kind of curious in a way, but I think there's something like that going on too. You mentioned public health. I think you've 
called the field of public health arrogant and ideological. I think that was in the American interest because they maybe don't have to watch their policies fail on a daily basis. They're concerned about the Volk, the population as a whole, rather than the individuals. And then they have this, they claim this connection to science. And so it, it gives the field legitimacy in some way. Maybe we can discuss this a bit. Where does the field of public health go wrong? I describe it as arrogant because traditionally public health dealt with the usual issues, uh, sanitation, quarantine, infectious disease. And that's how it was in the 19th century. Now, all of a sudden, public health is involved in everything because the argument of public health activists is that any difficult event is a public health risk, even if it caused simply depression, because uh, depression is now a public health interest too. And so by circuitous route, you can say any foreign policy or domestic policy issue, the policy issue is a public health issue by virtue of the fact that can cause people some kind of unhappiness, anxiety, and therefore a mental illness, and therefore it's a public health concern. So by way of that, they have pretty much put themselves at a table at every table. Now, they, they did this in stages, I believe. So in, you know, 50, 70 years ago, there was a fairly rigid division in, in between public and private, certainly in medicine. Public medicine or public health was preventive medicine. Uh, private health was curative medicine. So doctors, for example, 50 years ago, 80 years ago, they never would have been interested in exercise and diet, not particularly. That was sort of preventive medicine. Obviously, this made no sense because a lot of modalities are both preventive and curative. So that collapsed. But with the collapse meant that public health no longer had to stay on its side of the line. Public health could be involved in private health too, in everyday health of, of individuals. Another thing was a, occurred was a change in the understanding of freedom. American conceptions of freedom are always, I can do what I want. I can go to a, a McDonald's and buy a Big Mac. That's my freedom. That, that's expression of my freedom. But a new idea of freedom came into being. It's been around for a couple of years, but it took hold in public health, which is if you buy that Big Mac and you know it's bad for you, and yet you still do it, you're not free. You're a slave to your own desires. And therefore, we are going to help you be free by preventing you from getting the Big Mac and by educating you out of that desire. So freedom got turned on its head, where instead of being free as I do what I want, freedom is to do what the most virtuous thing you can imagine doing. And therefore, public health officials came in and said, we're going to help you be free by doing this stuff. So by a combination of of factors, public health allowed itself to get involved in everything. And so that's sort of what we have now. The problem is, as you mentioned, or I mentioned in the essay, public health doesn't really have science. It has epidemiology, population statistics. That's not the same as, say, an understanding of, say, basic math or physics or neuroscience. And it has modeling. But in the modeling, it can create associations. But what happens in a little sleight of hand is it takes those associations and turns them into causations and therefore says, something causes this or something causes that. Therefore, you must listen to us. And that's not accurate. There's a little bit of kind of a false advertising there. But that goes on in public health too. But the basic structure of public health that allowed it to spring out into all these other issues was as I described. I think that expansion has happened in medicine too. I mean, in some ways, the expansion of the role of the physician and the expansion of the role of the public health official is, seems to have happened almost concurrently. I mean, what is it that doctors do now? Well, okay, now we're supposed to be involved in 
you know, debates about gun control. That's that's our lane. Now we're supposed to be involved in debates about food in school cafeterias or, you know, name the issue. You can always tie it back to medicine and say, well, this is, and, and it's, it's weird to see that because to me, physician is about the patient in front of you, but somehow doctors have also been dragged into these kind of policy questions. They did it in a way that I brought up earlier in the discussion and the same way that public health did it, meaning there was a division in the past between, say, mental health and physical health. And the doctor's role, unless you were a psychiatrist, was largely physical health. There were some limitations to that model, no question about it. I mentioned the case of psychogenic pain. That's not all mental. There is not a lesion, but it deserves to be considered a factor by physicians who are dealing with issues of pain. And in that way, mental health became important, not just in questions of pain, but are you dealing with uh, angina, uh, angina, or are you dealing with uh, cancer, dealing with opiates? All of a sudden, all the things that doctors used to be concerned with, physical health, were now at the, they were joined by these mental health issues. And with mental health issues, you get everything because anything can cause a mental health issue, right? So an ability to get an abortion, not an ability to get an abortion, that's a mental health issue. Crime, that's a mental health issue. It can affect your physical health. Therefore, crime must be a medical issue. So by that way, everything, as for the public health field, everything becomes a physician's issue. And that's how they do it. That's how it's happened. Yeah. Walls collapse. Right. I don't know. It. I think it undermines the profession in some way. Yeah. You're, I mean, if you look another way, there's also something else that's gone on. That's the whole idea of progressivism, the whole idea of the last century, the idea of experts. Now, when it comes to democracy, the general understanding was people can govern themselves. That's the whole thing of democracy. And some people look at that as wrong, that government is like neurosurgery. You need an expert, being a Democrat with a little d. I look at a government not as neurosurgery. I look at it as blowing your nose. And you do not need an expert to help you blow your nose. You do not need a nurse to help you blow your nose. Now, the question is, are all these issues require expertise or is it like blowing your nose where you can do it yourself? And that, that really is the basic issue here. And when it comes to the issue of, say, public health and doctors getting involved in all these issues, they basically think you need an expert. You need a neurosurgeon to live your life. And I disagree. I think it's like blowing your nose. You can do it yourself. And that really comes down to that. On that note, Ron, thanks so much for taking the time today. This was uh, a really great conversation. Thank you for inviting me. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.